How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, let's uh, have a few moments of silent prayer before I open in prayer. It's our custom to do this every time because Scripture teaches that if we regard iniquity in our heart, the Lord will not hear us. When we sin as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, we we don't lose our salvation, but we're out of fellowship. When we confess our sins then God is faithful and just to forgive us the sins we confessed as well as all other sins to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, and this restores us to fellowship. So it is uh, the way in which we resume what the Scripture calls our spiritual walk with the Lord, walking by the Spirit. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, it's such a great privilege we have to come to you in prayer. We know that you are uh, the God who is in control of history and in control of the details of our life, and that no matter how chaotic or difficult things may be, none of these things surprise you or intimidate you, that you have declared the beginning from the end. You know all things and have supplied us with all the resources that we need to face and handle any circumstance in life because of what we have in Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to study your word, to have a copy of your word in our hands. And Father, we pray that you would uh, help us as we study this evening to understand your word and to apply it in our lives. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Tomorrow is June the 6th. Tomorrow is the 70th anniversary of the Allied offensive that uh, turned the tide of the war in Europe and the invasion known as D-Day. I had the privilege about 12 years ago to go to uh, and walk the beaches of Normandy and to visit some of the museums and and, and to walk through the cemeteries of the uh, men who lost their lives, gave their lives for our liberty at, at uh, on the beaches of Normandy, and that was a, a very moving experience. If you've never done that, I hope you get a chance to do that. Uh, I think it's something that every uh, American uh, should be required to do before they exercise their voting privilege. I think uh, in the and in, in, it's interesting in in Israel. They, of course, have mandatory military service for everyone. At the age of 18, you go into the IDF. If for some reason uh, you're a conscientious objector, you can serve your nation in the ambulance corps or medical corps or something else of of that nature. But if you go through, go into uh, your, your national service, at the age of 18, one of the things that's part of, of your basic training is that they take you to all of the uh, battlefields. They take you all to all of the significant sites in the history of that nation so that you understand 
the background of the nation, the history of the nation. You understand what makes Israel as a nation important, and you understand the price that's been paid for their independence and for their freedom. And you understand their history, and you, uh, you know, Israel's a young enough nation to where they can go to these battlefields and have um, men and women who fought in those battlefields tell them what they went through in those battlefields. And so that draws a connection uh, for them. So they understand that if they're going to put their life on the line for their country, they understand what it is that they are fighting for and what they might uh, be called upon to give their to give their life for. And so I think that's that's important. Another thing that they do that I think is interesting, not that we I'm not talking thinking that we should do any do this, you can't change certain things, but their memorial day is the day before their independence day. And I've heard this from American uh young Jewish men who've gone over and and uh and served in the IDF that they come back to the US and they it's a jarring thing for them to watch what happens here on Memorial Day, because Memorial Day isn't Veterans Day. Memorial Day is to remember those who have given their life for our freedom. And in Israel, it is a day that is quite somber. It is a day of reflection, a day that focuses on those who have uh, given their life for the independence of the nation and the, uh, the freedom of the citizens. And so they don't have two-for-one sales. They don't have... Uh, appliance sales, car sales, they don't have all of that. They just uh, focus on the reality of the day. And at midnight, it's like the, the, somebody rings a bell and they go from Memorial Day to Independence Day. And the mood in the nation changes from a time of somber reflection to a time of rejoicing and exhilaration, and Independence Day then becomes a great national uh, national celebration. So this, I think, is is really an important uh, juxtaposition. But I thought that tonight, before we begin our, our time in the Word, that I would uh, read a couple of things, selections I made from a book I picked up the other day called The uh, 101st Airborne, by Mark Bando. It's the Screaming Eagles. That's their, if you don't know, that's what's on their patch, the 101st Airborne Division uh, at Normandy. And he is considered one of the best historians of the 101st Airborne. The first story is of Jacob Foos, who was in Company A of the 377th Parachute Field Artillery Battalion. Planes of the 436th and 437th uh, Tactical Combat Group hurtled through dense cloud banks and into flak and machine gun fire. Many pilots dropped to a lower altitude and accelerated to nearly 150 miles per hour before releasing their jumpers. That's quite a shock to jump at when you're going 150. Um, Jake Fuss was on one such plane and was first out the door over a field near Saint-Marie-Dumont. After a terrific opening shock, Fuss hit the ground flat on his back in the middle of his first oscillation. With the wind knocked out of him, it took the stunned trooper a minute or two to regain his senses. He noted that he was near the base of a hedgerow, good news for concealment purposes. Fuss had jumped with a fully assembled and loaded M1 tucked behind his reserve chute at a 45-degree angle. 
He exited his harness, rolled up his canopy, and tossed it along with the backpack and reserve into the grassy ditch at the base of the hedgerow. Immediately, he grasped his cricket. They had those little metal crickets that they would use to identify one click. If you heard somebody, you'd click once, and then they would answer with two. So if you remember those little crickets that they that, that we played with as kids. So he grasped his cricket, which was tied with a string to his cartridge belt. Soon he heard the approach of another trooper. After exchanging metallic recognition signals, he joined up with a man from the 501st. They set off together, heading south by west. After wandering for two hours, remember it's pitch black, it was about 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning, and they're in enemy-controlled territory. Uh, After wandering for two hours, the duo signaled two more men of the 501st and joined forces with them. Though an artilleryman at the time, Fuss had originally belonged to the 3rd, uh, that would be the 3rd Battalion of the 502nd, and had taken training in infantry fire and maneuver tactics while with them. Near 0400 hours, the group was startled by the fast ripping sound of an MG-42 German machine gun. One of the 501st troopers was hit in the face and died on the spot. Fuss hit the ground facing the hedgerow, which was the source of fire, and began firing his M1. The other two 501st men fanned out to 100 yards either side of Fuss and also began firing and advancing toward the German position. Fuzz finally got in close enough to toss a grenade on the machine gun crew. It developed that the uh, MG crew had been guarding a German artillery piece, and the assaulting paratroopers had a turkey shoot, killing a dozen of the artillerymen and finding two more in the front seat of an ammo-hauling truck. The two in the truck were quickly dispatched by the Geronimo sergeant with a Tommy gun burst. The Americans discovered the artillery piece, and one of them tossed a grenade down the muzzle of it. After the explosion, they opened the breach and fired armor-piercing 30-06 rounds into the breach door. They tossed white phosphorus grenades into the rear of the ammo truck, which was loaded with powder charges for the artillery piece. A terrific blast resulted. Now, other Germans in the vicinity, who knew the coordinates of their recently KO'd position, began dropping mortar rounds into the field. Bright flashes and jarring detonations rocked the area, and all three surviving troopers were peppered with small mortar fragments. Fuss took shrapnel in the back and one leg. The trio jumped into former German foxholes to escape the blasts and sweated out the barrage. When it died down, they moved away from the area, still moving west towards St. Mary Glise. This trio failed to link up with a larger force for the next two days, as they wandered on the 8th of June, a sniper shot Fuss and the bullet lodged in his shoulder joint. The trio took shelter in a hedgerow foliage until a large force led by Lieutenant Colonel Robert Cole came along. After exchanging information, Cole told Fuss he had heard a loud explosion on the night of the jump, probably the result of the exploding artillery ammo truck. Cole's force was en route to Le Forge on the N-13 highway and advised that the trio would soon be in the zone of the 4th Infantry Division. After Cole's force departed, men of the Ivy Division evacuated Fuss and his two companions, all of whom were wounded. By 12 June, they were recuperating in English hospitals. Fuss would return to fight in Holland, Bastogne, that's the Battle of the Bulge, and Alsace, receiving another bullet wound in his leg during the Bulge. The actions of this makeshift group were in the highest traditions of the airborne, joining forces with virtual strangers and improvising to destroy enemy personnel and equipment. 
Incidentally, Fuss refused to leave combat even after receiving a million-dollar wound at Baston. In March 1945, he was finally sent back to the States when the bullet, which the doctors were unable to remove from his shoulder since Normandy, began, became too troublesome to cope with. Fuss's prior infantry training in the States served him and other non-infantry paratroopers, such as airborne engineers, well. They did plenty of infantry-style fighting, although their classification prevented them from receiving the combat infantryman's badge. Now, the second person or episode I'll read about is Manny Gasolga, who was in the headquarters company of the 502nd uh, Parachute Infantry Regiment also part of the 101st Division. As a member of the uh, Regimental S-2, that's the, um, what's S-2? That's Operations. In the 502nd Regiment, Manny Gasoga was born in Hilo, is it Hilo or Hilo, Hawaii? Hilo, Hawaii, and was ethnically typical of that region, part Chinese, Filipino, and Portuguese. Despite his small stature, Manny was aggressive and well-trained in the use of the knife. Because of his Asiatic features, he was the target of much ribbing by his fellow paratroopers, some of whom had dubbed him Chop Chop. On coming to to ground D-Day night, Manny found himself on the eastern outskirts of St. Mary Glees. He jumped with an M1 in a Griswold bag and an SCR-300 radio. After landing, Manny could locate no friendly troops. He got tired of dragging the heavy radio around and left it behind. At one point, he heard someone on the opposite side of a hedgerow. Sounding his, crick, uh, sounding his cricket, he got no reply, so he tossed a grenade over. Later, he said, I hope it wasn't another paratrooper. Manny heard other crickets sounding everywhere, but he couldn't locate any friendly, friendly troops in the darkness. Manny had headed east toward the coast, but could hear much firing from behind him in the direction of St. Mary Glees. He changed direction, thinking that friendly troops might need his help. On the outskirts of St. Mare, he found a two-story French house with no lights on inside. Cautiously entering the pitch-black dwelling with knife in hand, Manny walked uh, quietly toward the rear of the house. Suddenly there was the blast of a grenade right outside the nearest window. Manny dove onto the floor, then heard cleated boots on the wooden floor walking briskly toward him in the darkness. The owner of the boots stopped right next to him. Reaching out in the darkness... Manny felt the smooth, tall jackboots of a German officer. He got up into a crouch, then tackled the German. Going for the throat, he hacked rather than slit the enemy officer's throat. Warm blood spurted everywhere as the German convulsed in his death throes. As Manny tried to clean the sticky, objectionable blood from his knife handle, he heard a voice calling out from upstairs. The German officer's comrade was trying to determine what had happened to him. Manny crept up the dark stairs, stalked the other man, and planted his M3 knife in the man's back. The blade stuck uh, stuck between the German's ribs, and Manny couldn't ex- extract it, so he left it in the body as he moved out. Manny left the house and headed east toward Utah Beach. He fell in with a mixed group of troopers who engaged in a shootout with Germans strung along a hedgerow. Manny picked up a Springfield rifle equipped with a grenade launcher from an 82nd Airborne trooper and used it to kill three Germans at this position. Rushing in on the trio, who had two Mauser rifles and an MP40, Manny found them down from his rifle grenade. He saw one man wearing a hard-shell pistol holster and removed a P-38 from it. At that moment, the German's body shifted. 
Manny pumped several 9-millimeter rounds from the P-38 into the fallen man, finishing him with his own pistol. Continuing toward the coast, Manny found a dead American soldier clad in an M-41 field jacket and infantry leggings. He presumably had come in by glider. The man lay on his back with one arm extended into the air in supplication. Manny saw a GI wristwatch on the dead man's arm. He needed it more than the dead man now, so he removed it from the corpse and put it on his own arm. This watch would be broken within two days from hitting the ground on the run while attacking. The crystal of Manny's original watch had been shattered either on the drop or while knifing the two Germans in the house. Locating other 502nd men near St. Martin de Vereville, Manny would join them on the move to Blossville before the assault on Carrington. On the afternoon of 9 June, while observing the N13 highway, Manny saw a lone German officer riding a bicycle northbound toward Cherbourg. The Kraut was hauling his personal baggage in a suitcase and was unaware that he was under observation. Making the best shot of his Army career, Manny arched a rifle grenade at the oncoming enemy officer. The grenade looped over and struck the officer's helmet, blowing his head off. Manny Gasulga survived the Normandy campaign and would be shot through the shoulder in the Zanche Forest on 18 September 1944. On 12 January 1945, he received multiple shrapnel wounds near Longchamps, Belgium. Now, those stories, and I've read a lot about World War II, and I'm reading a lot in a couple of these different books by Mark, um, Mark Bando, and one of the things that he goes into is a lot more uh, personal, gory detail than most people are aware of in combat. And what these men went through in those days in that invasion and the days that followed and those that fought all the way across Europe, not to mention those who had fought previously in North Africa or, or in Sicily and Italy, goes beyond anything that any of us can, can imagine. And the debt that we owe to that generation, because they literally changed history with what they went through on D-Day, and they provided freedom that we've enjoyed in, uh, in the world, ba- basically, for the last uh, 70 years because of what they were willing to do. And many of them gave their, their life so that we could have the freedoms that we have uh, to be here, uh, to enjoy the life that we do. And people forget that, that every generation has to earn their right to freedom all over again, and it's usually paid for on the battlefield. And so this is a time that we need to uh, remember this. There's a, I'll let you know how it is, but there's a 3D film that is new that's going to be shown at the IMAX at the Houston Natural Science uh, Museum. And it, I think it opened last week. But I'm going to that this weekend, and we'll let you know how it is. But it should be, it's a 40-minute film on D-Day, so hopefully it will be uh, quite good. Let's open our Bibles to Romans 13. Romans chapter 13, and our focus tonight is on the title for this section, which uh, covers basically three verses from 13.8 to 13.10 on love one another. Now, remember the context. It's always important to remember context that uh, as Paul comes to this section of Romans, he's dealing with a lot of application. Romans 1 through 11 dealt with a lot of uh, what 
people would mistakenly call just theology, but theology is always applicational, and any theology that is sound biblical theology is always applicational. If it's not, it's not good theology. In chapter 11, I mean chapter 12, after 11 chapters, I mean, think about that. In, 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 in most churches today, uh, they want to skip from skip the first part. I don't want to hear all the doctrine, all the theology. I just want you to tell me what to do. But Paul takes painstaking effort uh, to go through 11 chapters understanding the nature of our, of our sin our justification that it is by faith alone. All we have to do to be saved is to believe that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, just to trust him. At the instant we trust in Christ as Savior, we have eternal life because Christ paid the penalty for our sin. We can't add to it. We can't take away from it. Jesus paid it all. And all that's required from us is just faith, trust in him and him alone explains that we're all in the first three chapters, two and a half chapters, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Following that, justification by faith. Then he goes from that into now that we are justified, how do we live? Romans 6, 7, and 8 deal with the issues of the Christian life. And then in chapters 9 through 11, he talks about God's righteousness in relation to Israel. After those 11 chapters... He begins to transition to key points of application. Romans 12, 1 and 2 sets the framework. In Romans 12, uh, 1, Paul gives the command, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies. And he says body because he's not talking about just your physical body, but the body means the whole person, including everything that is part of your body, which includes... That's not part of your physical body, but it's in your physical body, and that's your soul and your spirit, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service, and do not be conformed to this world. So what we're seeing in the last part of Romans is there's a contrast between how the world does it and how Christians should live. We're not to be pressured into the uh, modus operandi of the world around us. We're not to be conformed to the ways of the world or the actions of the world, but we're to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. That means thinking. It means studying the Scripture, reflecting upon it, uh, giving time in our lives, not just for going to Bible class, but for reflecting on what we've learned, reading through the Scriptures daily, and thinking uh, about what that means in terms of our own thinking and in terms of our own life, with the result that we can prove or demonstrate in our own lives that the will of God is good and acceptable and perfect. So that's the framework. As part of this, we dealt with government and issues related to authority in verses 1 through 7. Now, at the end of that section in verses 6 and 7, he comes to the application of the authority principle for government to paying taxes, that all citizens are required to pay taxes and it doesn't matter what the uh, uh, percentage is or whether you think the tax code is, is fair or balanced. What matters is that this is the law. 
And so he says in verse 6, for because this is at the bottom of the screen here, for because of this you also pay taxes, for they that is the government leaders are, are God's ministers attending continuously to this very thing that is to uh, for our for our good as indicated in the first two verses. Render therefore that's the conclusion and command to render or give to all their due taxes to whom taxes are due. And that word would actually refer to giving um, tribute to the empire. Uh, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs. And the word there translated in the Greek as customs is the word that would relate to what we think of as taxes. And then he goes on to say, fear to whom fear and honor to whom honor. Now, on this screen, I've got that last verse at the top. Obviously, that context is saying something about money. For that reason, a lot of people think that this first phrase in Romans 13, 8, uh, this, this first clause, owe no one anything except to love one another, is talking about money. In fact, you've probably heard that. I've heard that from lots of Bible teachers over the course of my life. In fact, there was one, some of you may have been to one of his uh, uh, conferences, a guy by the name of Bill Gothard who had a uh, two-day conference called Basic Youth Conflicts, and a lot of people went to that, and he built a whole financial policy off of this, this one clause that this teaches us to pay cash for everything, don't use a credit card, don't go into debt, churches that get a mortgage, or if you get a mortgage, this is not God's will. And, in fact, there are not only people like that, but there are some um, uh, well-recognized scholars and exegetes who try to make that, that connection. All my life I've heard different people make that statement, and I've never bought it because it doesn't fit the context. And I've always had a sense of what this said, but I couldn't demonstrate it. And I just happened to run into something, some information the other day as I was reading in a totally different passage, totally different context. I was working through the Sunday morning uh, material in the, the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6. And there's a similar vocabulary and uh, what I was reading in uh, material for last Sunday and this coming Sunday uh, directly applied and directly correlated with the vocabulary that's at the first part. And it was one of those things that you read, and it's just a great blinding flash uh, of the obvious. When, as soon as you read it, you say, "That's a- you know that's absolutely right. So he's, uh, but this is the issue in terms of is this talking about when it says owe no one anything except to love one another, is this talking about money? Well, as we get into this section of these three verses, I want us to just kind of do a little flyover on these three verses, and I want to point out some things to you in terms of its organization. Let me read through the three verses, and then we'll look at at some of these observations. It says in verse 8, owe no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. Verse 9, for the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet, 
And if there's any other commandment, all are summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm or no evil or no bad to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Now, one of the first things we note is that twice in this passage, you have the phrase fulfill, related to fulfilling the law. In verse 8, Paul says, For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. And in verse 10, he says, Love is the fulfillment of the law. So what do you think these three verses are all about? How love fulfills the law. He states it at the beginning. He states it at the end. He's very clear this is what he's talking about. At the beginning, in verse 8, he says, Owe no one anything. And then he says, love, love, He who loves one another fulfills the law. That verse is parallel to verse 10. Verse 10 says, Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. The phrase, love does no harm to a neighbor, is expressing a parallel or synonymous concept to owe no one anything. Whatever owe no one anything means, it's parallel or synonymous with not doing evil or bad to a neighbor. I want, what, so that it just see, seems from context that owing no one anything isn't really talking about financial indebtedness. Now, what's sandwiched in between verse 8 and verse 10 is verse 9. Verse 9 begins for the commandments, the uh, mitzvot, the commandments. That is an expression defines what he means by law. Now, he's the five commandments he lists here in verse 9 are the second half of the Ten Commandments. So that tells us right away that when he means law in verse 8 and in verse 9, he's not talking about something in the New Testament. He's referencing the Mosaic law, specifically the Ten Commandments, which are just the prelude or the beginning of the uh, of the Torah, the Mosaic law, which contained actually 613 commandments. 603 commandments beyond the 10 in the introduction. So that's sandwiched in between there. Okay, now let's look at the first verse and begin to look at it in some detail. It says, Owe no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. Now the main thing he's driving toward here is that loving one another fulfills the law, taking us back to the Mosaic law. We'll talk about that in a minute, but first we have to just look at this, this first clause. Now, a standard explanation of this verse is one that is given in a commentary called Unlocking Romans by Rene Lopez. Rene, I've known Rene for, for many years. He's a uh, free guy who's involved in the Free Grace Society, I've heard him speak. He's got his doctorate from Dallas Seminary, now teaches at Dallas. But he takes a pretty standard view of this, this passage. He says, still thinking of the Christian's obligation to fear and honor the state. Verses 1 through 7 focused on our response, our submission to the authority of the state. But there's a shift that takes place in verse 8. 
I looked at about... Now, now in the original Greek, as I've told you, there's no verse breakdown. There's no sentence breakdown. There's no periods. There's no commas. Uh, there's uh, no semicolons. There's no paragraph breaks. It's, in fact... And your what they call uncial documents, which are all uh, all the letters are uppercase. There's not even a space between the letters. Now you, you think if you see something like that, how in the world would I ever be able to break that down? Know where the sentences are, the paragraphs, or whatever. And that's the brilliance of of, of Greek is that the the grammar is used to identify all these things. And so there's there's not a a matter of dispute as to where the sentences should be. In, in the Greek, in the original, every now and then somebody will break, uh, break a long sentence in a Greek text uh, to, into two sentences, but pretty much the Greek text, the editors and translators uh, who handle the Greek text are consistent in where they see the sentences and where they break the paragraphs. Now, that's important because in all the Greek texts that I consulted, they all break the paragraph between verse 7 and verse 8. The grammar indicates that there's a shift that takes place uh, because of the way it's structured, the language is structured in the Greek that he's closed out one topic and he's shifting to another topic. The new topic, starting in verse 8, it's very clear that going back to this verse, it's very clear that this is a complete sentence. And the focal point of this sentence, when you compare it with verse 10, introduces the new topic. So just in terms of the language, we know that we're not talking about submission to authority anymore. We're now talking about loving one another. And owing no one anything doesn't belong with the previous section it's part of this sentence, and it relates to the new topic, not the old topic. So when Rene comes along, and I just chose this because it was a little more concise statement, he says what happens here is Paul is still talking about the Christian's obligation to fear and honor the state, and he transitions with this command to owe no one anything. Instead, the translation, let no debt remain outstanding in the NIV, captures the correct meaning. And they try to make this work, this idea that somehow there's some obligation there. Don't let any physical debt or financial obligation remain. He explains it. He says that is one must repay all debts, financial debts, not that one should never borrow. Now, that's true, but that's not what this passage is saying. Sometimes we hear pastors teach true things but you look at the passage, that's not in that passage. That's in Proverbs, that's in Psalms, that's somewhere else, but that's not necessarily in this passage. He says, uh, and so what Rene is saying here, we should that the passage is saying is we should pay our financial debts. It's not saying, and he's accurate here, it's not saying that one should never borrow. Some people get the idea that the Bible says that we should never borrow. Many times it's based on this verse. The Bible never says that. In fact, if you study the history of economics, uh, a sound economy is driven by credit. You don't want to get overextended on your credit. You don't want to get into uh, deficit spending like our federal government because you can never get out of it and you become enslaved to the debt. But credit is important to build and grow the economy. You, you had this sort of... Um, uh, 
hypocritical, two-faced attitude about this topic in the Middle Ages. In the Roman Catholic Church, they taught nobody could charge usury. Nobody could charge interest, period. But they couldn't live like that. You needed to be able to have credit for an economy to function. You had to borrow from somebody. because So you couldn't borrow from a Christian, so who did you go to? You went to the Jewish community, and you borrowed from the Jewish community. But the point that I'm making is that the idea that you don't borrow at all is not a biblical concept. It's not even reflected in good economics. Look at these two passages. Psalm 37.21 says that the wicked borrows and does not repay. The contrast is that the righteous shows mercy and gives. This is uh, the type of parallelism called an emblematic parallelism. It's not The first line isn't synonymous to the second line. That's a synonymous parallelism. The second line isn't the opposite of the first line. That's an, uh, 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 an antonymic, uh, antonymic uh, par- uh, antithetical parallelism where you have opposites. But it's, uh, uh, the second line is an expansion of the idea in the first line. The idea of the first line isn't that it's wrong to borrow. It's that it's wrong to not repay the loan. The wicked borrows and doesn't repay. The reason he's wicked is because he doesn't pay you back. But the righteous, the righteous shows mercy and gives. The righteous is generous. The righteous not only pays back, but he's also generous and gives. And it's expanding on the concept. The second line uh, assumes there's repayment but more. Matthew 5.42, passage we studied not long ago in our study of the Sermon on the Mount on Sunday morning, Jesus said, Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. He doesn't say it's wrong to borrow. So the idea that owe no one anything means you can't borrow, and it's wrong biblically to borrow, is not correct. That's, That's bad exegesis and bad economics. But what's interesting is this word to owe. Owe no one anything is the verb ophelo, O-P-H-E-I-L-O. And it means to be obligated or to be indebted to someone financially. Here it's a present active imperative, which means it's a command that should characterize your life at all times. It is a... The word ophelo is a, the verb cognate. That means it's the verb form of the noun that we find in Matthew 6, 12, ophelema. In the Lord's Prayer, Jesus is quoted in, in, um, in Matthew as saying, Forgive us our debts as we forgive those who have a debt against us as we forgive our debtors. Okay, the word for debts and debtors is based off of this noun, ophilema. This noun and this verb are just cognates. One's One's the verb form of the noun. Now, I'm building an important point here. So when we look at this in Matthew chapter 6, we have to think, what, why in the world is this talking about debts? Now, if you look at your Bible, if you turn over to Matthew 6 for, or 6 for a minute in verse 12, we read, and forgive us our debts as we forgive those who, des- who forgive our debtors, as we forgive our debtors. And then after the prayer is over with, what we'll talk about probably this coming Sunday morning, Jesus 
makes a teaching point in verses 14 and 15. He says, for if you forgive men, this is an expansion on what he says when he says, forgive us our debts as we forgive those who have debts against us. Is this talking about financial debt or something else? Jesus expands on that in verse 14 when he says, for if you forgive men their debts. Is that what it says? That is not what it says. And verse 14 says, if you forgive men their trespasses, the Greek word is peritoma, a word for sin. Peritoma is used as a synonym for debt. If you forgive men their their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. In the Luke account of the Lord's Prayer, we read, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. So obviously, in both Matthew and Luke, the word for obligation or debt is parallel or synonymous to the word for sin. Now, this is backed up by understanding language. What I read uh, briefly in in one source uh, last week was that that the concept in Judaism of sin was that you were indebted to... If you sin, you sin against God. You are now in, uh, indebted to God. If you sin against your brother, you have created a spiritual debt to your brother. Now, this was built off of an Aramaic word that was used, and remember, Jesus would have taught in Aramaic as well as in Greek. I believe he taught in Greek here, but rabbinical writings were in Aramaic. And in rabbinical thought, uh, they used this idea of this, this word meaning debt to communicate sin and an, that you've created this obligation against another. Uh, Don Carson, who's a Greek professor up at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, with whom I have uh, many disagreements in terms of his theology, in his commentary in Matthew in the Expositor's Bible Commentary, he writes, more important, the Aramaic word hova, which means debt, it's a broad word. It could incorporate both spiritual debt or financial debt. He says the Aramaic word hova is often used, for example, in the Targums, that's the rabbinical literature, is often used to mean sin or transgression. Then he's going to, dice BS is diceman. Dice is short for Adolf Diceman. BS is the abbreviation for his book, Biblical Studies. He was a noted Greek scholar at the beginning of the 20th century. Diceman notes an instance of the cognate verb hamartian, that's the Greek word for sin, of philo, that's our verb. Now, we don't have a verb in Matthew 6.12, do we? We have a noun there. What the importance of this quote is that that um, Deisman is making makes the point in his analysis of Greek, uh, Greek language that homertian ophilo ophilo is the verb meaning I owe a debt I owe something I owe sin that that uh, Deisman says that the cognate verb homertian ophilo literally I owe sin. Uh, And then he goes on to say, uh, probably Matthew has provided a literal rendering rendering of the Aramaic Jesus probably most commonly used in his preaching. 
And even Luke uses the cognate participle in the second line, Ponti afilenta him and everyone who sins against us. There is therefore no reason to take debts to mean anything other than sins. It's a synonym. This is how the rabbis talked about sin. Uh, here conceived as something owed God. Now, I thought that was an interesting thing, and I went back and found uh, Deisman's biblical studies and found the original quote and research there, which was important. He, he states in looking through, this guy was absolutely brilliant, uh, knew, knew Greek, knew uh, Koine Greek, knew the different earlier forms of Greek, and really was a breakthrough scholar in showing that the Koine Greek of the New Testament wasn't some Holy Spirit language, but was common everyday Greek. And his studies that were published at the end of the 19th century or 20th century were breakthrough studies. I mean, these guys just just breathed classical literature, and they could quote lengthy passages from just about any ancient Greek document uh, verbatim uh, just uh, at, at, upon request. But he says, in the directions preserved in a duplicated inscription of the Lycian Xanthus for the sanctuary, so this has to do with the uh, Xanthan uh, sanctuary temple for, for a, a Greek god, um, uh, of, of, and then he's, uh, of Men Tyrannus, a deity of Asia Minor. And then he cites a source, and he says it's, it was found near Sunium, that would be in modern Turkey, not older than the imperial period. So this is roughly a period during the uh, 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 Greek Greek empire, as opposed to probably as opposed to the Roman Empire. He says there occurs a peculiar passage. Then he quotes it in Greek, and at the conclusion he says further the phrase "I owe sin" in this passage, and that's where it's found is right here. Did I go for, I went forward. Okay, there we go. It's found. Um, where's the quote? There's a quote. Okay, it's found right here. He says, this phrase, Hamartian Ophilo, I owe sin, in this passage is also very interesting. It is manifestly used like I owe krios, which is a Greek word for debt. I owe debt. Hamartia, or sin, being thought of as debt. Now, I've gone into detail on this because it's just to make you read commentary after commentary, and they talk about this passage in Romans 13.8 as, as focusing on financial obligation. And it doesn't even fit the context. He's saying, don't become spiritually indebted to another. In other words, don't sin against your fellow man which is parallel to the idea love does, does no harm to a neighbor. So the concept, and, and what's important here, I didn't make this point clear enough, is here you have the verb used, and you have the verb used in Romans 13, whereas in Matthew it's the noun that's used. Now the, I'm just showing that you've got documentation that both the noun in rabbinical literature and the verb from the evidence given by Deisman were both used in this way to show spiritual debt, not financial debt. So owing no one anything is an idiom for don't sin against your brother. Don't create a spiritual obligation of sin in regard to your brother. 
And that parallel to the idea love does no harm. Literally, the Greek word there for harm is kakos, which means uh, which means sin or evil. Love does no evil to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. So now, when we look at parallel 13.8 at the top of the slide with 13.10 at the bottom, both talk about fulfillment. But in 13.8... It uses the word plerao in the Greek. That's the same word that's used over in Ephesians 5, 18, for be filled by means of the Spirit. That's a different, a little bit different concept. The word group of plerao has a broad range of meaning. So you really have to look at how it's used each time. We studied this before. I'm not going to go through it again. But we've talked about the four different ways that you have the word fulfillment used in the New Testament. We go to Matthew 2, if you remember, where you have Matthew uh, citing four different Old Testament passages, and he says, it is fulfilled. And then he quotes an Old Testament passage. Jesus was to be born in Bethlehem. It is fulfilled from Micah 5.2 that that in you, Bethlehem, Ephrata, one who's going forth from from, uh, uh, eternity will be will be born. So that's your literal prophecy with the literal fulfillment. You have three other usage that aren't literal prophecy. We think of fulfillment as always literal f- prophecy and literal fulfillment. But the way that they used the word was much more fluid than that. They used it in sort of a comparison mode. They used it as, as, a, as a depiction of typology. And they also used it to just sort of summarize uh, Old Testament teaching. And I've gone through all of that in detail. What we have here is a verb in the perfect tense, which indicates completed action. When you love one, an- one another, you have completed what the law says to do. You have obeyed the law. The law has been fulfilled. In Romans 13.10, though, we have the noun form, pleroma. Pleroma also has a broad range of meaning. You can't come along and say that every time you see the word pleroma, that it always means the same thing, because it doesn't, not any more than plerao does. It has a lot of different meanings, and you have to look at the context each time to see what it means. Pleroma means a fullness uh, in the sense that which is brought to fullness or completion. So what Paul is saying here is love does no harm to a neighbor, uh, therefore, love is the completion. It's the fulfillment or the full application of the law. Now, what does he mean by that when he talks about the law, that somehow this brings to completion uh, in terms of application of the law? Well, in between verse 8 and verse 10, we have verse 9. Verse 9 says, for the commandments, and then it lists these five commandments you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. Those are all taken out of the prelude to the Mosaic Law, which we call the Ten Commandments. So it's clear that what Paul is saying here is that how do you fulfill the law? You fulfill the law in, in terms of your love for one another through your love for, for one another. That's your, your spiritual life. It goes back to an interchange Jesus had in Matthew 22:36. Before we get there, though, I want to make one other point about this phrase, fulfillment of the law. 
Does that sound familiar to anybody recently from what we studied on Sunday morning? In Matthew chapter 5, as Jesus was shifting from talking about the Beatitudes to talking about these, the correct way to interpret the Ten Commandments, the Mosaic Law, different things there, he says to his disciples, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy but to fulfill. What he's showing is that he fulfills the law. It's the same verb. It's the same language that Paul is using here. Jesus fulfilled the law. He brought it to complete application. It's not talking about a fulfillment of prophecy. It's talking about the full application uh, application of the law, which he then contrasts with the Pharisees. The Pharisees were those who broke the least of the law in Matthew uh, 5.19. Jesus, breaking the least of the law and saying it was okay would be analogous to what Jesus said when he said, I do not think that I came to destroy the law of the prophets. I didn't come to break them. I didn't come to teach you that it's okay to violate some of them in contrast to the Pharisees. I came to not to destroy the law, but to completely fulfill it in terms of application. Now, later on in Matthew, he's got a, um, a little confrontation here with the, um, with the young man who comes to, uh, uh, comes to challenge him. And to pick up the context, this is a, uh, a lawyer that comes, and by lawyer they meant this is an expert in the Mosaic Law, uh, probably a Pharisee. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. Then one of them, a lawyer, so this would mean he is an expert in all the intricacies of their interpretation of the Mosaic Law, asked him a question, testing him, and says, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? Okay, you got 613 commandments. Which one's the greatest? And so Jesus replied in verse 17, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the first five commandments in the Ten Commandments all relate to our obedience to God. You shall... Uh, have no other gods before me, you shall not worship idols, uh, observing the Sabbath. All of the, the first five commandments all relate to our obedience to God. The second five have to do with uh, loving our neighbor. Jesus summarized this in verse 38, he said, uh, or in verse 39, he says, and the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang or depend all the law and the prophets. The law was a designation for the first five books of the Old Testament, and the prophets would refer to the Nevi'im in the Hebrew, and that would exclude the writings. But this was just a way, a shorthand way of referring to the Old Testament scriptures, what we call the Old Testament scriptures. They refer to it as the law and the prophets. Everything, in other words, what he's saying is everything else in the Old Testament depends and and develops this two basic commandments to love the Lord your God and love your neighbors yourself. So what Paul is talking about in Romans is that that we need to uh, obey the, the 
love, loving one another fulfills those five commandments. If we're obeying one another, then we're not, I mean, if we're loving one another, then we're not going to be committing adultery. We're not going to be committing murder, stealing, bearing false witness, coveting. Uh, that would be excluded if we're loving our neighbor. So that's the focal point of Romans 13.10. And this is a foundational command in the New Testament. Now, the New Testament develops this in terms of a new commandment. Galatians 6.2, we're told, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. What was the law of Christ? The law, that phrase, the law of Christ, takes us back to what Jesus said in John 13. The word fulfill here is a form of the word plerao. It's got a prefix in front of it, ana, and it basically has that same idea of you will, uh, and it's more of an intensification, you will certainly bring to completion or application the law of Christ. Now I'm going to run through 16 passages. We've got one already in Romans 13. I want you to feel the impact. This is the thrust of Scripture. 16 times, in addition to the one we're looking at, so a total of 17, we have these commands. In John 13, 34, and 35, the night before Jesus goes to the cross, he told his disciples, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, this is just one passage, but it states it three times. So I'm just listing 17 different passages. In John 15, Jesus repeated it. This is my commandment that you love one another as I've loved you. These things I command you that you love one another. In Romans 12.10, Paul said, Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. This is the only time he uses a different verb. He uses uh, uh, philostorgos here instead of agape. But it communicates the same principle. Be affectionate to one another with brotherly love and honor giving preference to one another. In Galatians 5.13, he says, Through love serve one another. In Ephesians 4.2, he says, With all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. In 1 Thessalonians 3.12, he says, May the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all, just as we do to you. In 1 Thessalonians 4.9, he says, But concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. Second Thess one three, we're bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting because your faith grows exceedingly and the love of every one of you all abounds toward each other. First Peter one twenty two, since you've purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. And then again in 1 Peter 4, 8, Above all things have a fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Then John, again in 1 John 2, 7, says, Brethren, I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you've had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you heard from the beginning. In 2, 8, he says, A new commandment I write to you, which thing is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. He who says he's in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light. That's fellowship. 
Why? First uh, John three eleven. He says, "For this is the message that you've heard from the beginning that we should love one another." And then in verse twenty three, we're to love one another as He gave us commandment. And then in Second uh, John five, which is the last statement uh, of loving one another, He says, "And now I plead with you, lady," which is how He's referring to the church, not as though I wrote a new commandment to you. But that which we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. So we have this command to love one another coming out of the Old Testament commandment in Leviticus 19.18, which is what's quoted in Romans 13, uh, 8 through 10. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And this state, quote, that from Leviticus 19.18 is quoted in Matthew 5.43, Matthew 19.19, Matthew 22.39, Mark 12.31, Romans 13.9, Galatians 5.14, and again in James 2.8. So you add um, these eight references to what, eight or nine references to what we have in, um, in the love one another passages, and you have an overwhelming uh, emphasis in the scripture on what it means to love one another. James 2.8 calls it the royal law, that we are to love your neighbor as yourself. And so this takes us up through Romans um, Romans 13.10. We'll come back next time to finish up Romans chapter 13 with some more key principles on living the uh, spiritual life in the last part of Romans 13. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things. Above all, we are thankful for your grace, that we have our ultimate freedom in Jesus Christ who died. He paid the penalty for our sins that we might be set free, Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Father, we know that our freedom, whether it's spiritual or whether it's civil, is based upon men who are willing to die for for our freedom. And, Father, we're thankful for those who... We're willing to make that sacrifice, and those who did uh, during the Second World War. Father, we pray for us that we might not take for granted our civil freedom or our spiritual freedom, and above all, that we might exploit our spiritual freedom, that we might grow to spiritual maturity and exhibit uh, your love. Only you can produce this kind of love in our life, for it is the fruit of the Spirit, according to Galatians 5, uh, 522. Uh, Father, we pray that you would help us to think through objectively how to implement these principles in our life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.